Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a lecturer, a climate corruption reporter and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and political crises that we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Rupert Reid. Rupert is an associate professor of philosopher at the University of East Anglia. He's the author of Parents for a Future and the founder of the Moderate Flank Incubator. Rupert was a member of Extinction Rebellion. Uh, he was part of the original uh, crowd that managed to launch it into the public consciousness. And most of his work is around the climate and eco-philosophy and how to develop visions of the future, how to develop agency, how to get people acting in the way that we all need to in order to save our future from the nightmare of neoliberalism that is not only driving people all around the world into poverty, uh, but is also causing huge environmental destruction. Rupert has been thinking about all of these problems and working on all of these problems for such a long time, so it was such a pleasure to speak with him. We discussed counter-histories, we discussed how to envision different futures. Uh, he introduced to me, at least, the difference between uh, dystopias, utopias and throughtopias. We discussed the notion of truth and how to tell the truth, what kinds of truths need to be iterated. We spent a long time discussing agency, as I've already mentioned, and brilliantly, uh, towards the end of the episode, Rupert gives a long list of initiatives that are happening all over the United Kingdom for people who want to get involved in climate action. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com or on Patreon. By signing up, you'll also get access to the weekly article I write inspired by each interview. Thank you to everyone who has signed up and is supporting the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who keep the project going every week. Rupert, thank you very much for joining me on Planet Critical. Pleasure to have you on the show. Very good to be here. So you are a professor at uh, University of East Anglia. What are you a professor in? What do you teach? So I teach philosophy these days. It's uh, mostly eco-philosophy and political philosophy that I teach and some philosophy of science, thinking about the precautionary principle, that kind of thing. What is the precautionary principle? Uh, the precautionary principle says that when there is a threat of sufficient magnitude, then we don't need to have full certainty about that threat before acting, before moving to meet it. It's the precautionary principle, for example, that led the EU to ban certain pesticides, even though they weren't completely proven to be devastating to bees. Because the idea is, well, if a threat is sufficiently serious, if you wait until you know for certain whether the threat is actual or not, you may have waited far too long. Uh, if we acted more on the precautionary principle, basically, we wouldn't be in the ter terrible mess that we're in. That is, I had never come across that. It's funny, I was just thinking about, you've just given me the name for something that I was thinking about yesterday uh, with regards to journalism. Mm. Um, and journalism needs to start taking a position of uh, advocacy in the face of, you know, the multiple, well, the existential crisis that we face because of the climate crisis. Right, so who gets, let's kind of stick on that. Who, um, <laughs> who decides with the precautionary principle? It is people in power. Is that the problem? 
It's people in power, yes, uh, as usual. Um, but I think there's a broader problem, which is that this principle in acting in a precautious way is unfortunately not something that we're very good at doing as a society as a whole. Arguably, that hasn't always been the case in uh, ancient cultures, in indigenous cultures. There were various kinds of practices that primed people to think really long term and to be really careful about doing mm. anything that could be majorly devastating to their ecosystems or their societal infrastructure. But we've moved to a way of living over the past few centuries, especially where we tend not to think like that. We tend to think, well, progress is a good thing. Uh, technology is progress. The more of it, the better. Let's roll. And then we deal with the consequences later. So I think mm. the problem is a lot broader and deeper than just the fact that we've got a lot of uh, short-termist uh, politicians who don't take uh, thinking green and thinking planet sufficiently seriously. It's that the, the culture, the civilization we're in as a whole uh, has got some work to do to get to the kind of place where we're thinking of the seventh generation, where we're thinking, what if, what if something really goes wrong here, where we're thinking beyond relatively narrow, short-term, often financial interests. Let's stick on this as well, because one of the things I noticed is that you write this sort of, these counter histories. What would the world like, look yeah. like if, you know? Um, and so do we have an idea of the moment that things started to go wrong when we started to perhaps move away from having a long-term understanding of our relationship with our environment? I had Carl Safina on the show about a year ago now, and oh, yeah. he uh, pointed finger at Plato <laughs> and Plato's right. profanity. He was like, that was, you know, we took a lot wrong turn. Yeah. God, what a great question. It's a huge question though, of course. I think there are various moments one could point to. Yeah, I think that there have been problematic moments in the history of philosophy for sure, but I think probably of, uh, of greater significance has been the onset of the Industrial Revolution and the, the shifts that that brought in. Because I think the Industrial Revolution led us into a way of thinking that did put the so-called needs of the economy, that did put technology center stage, and everything else seemed to be subordinate to that. But that's the wrong way around. It ought to be people who are in charge, and it ought to be technology that is the, the servant. And people who are in charge, that ought to be the people as a whole, not just an elite. And the people as a whole, they ought to be thinking in terms of their descendants, uh, the long term, humanly, and they have to be thinking, we have to be thinking in terms of the ecosystem, the planet as a whole, the other beings who we share it with. These are big asks, and they're asks which which lie outside much of what's central to our civilization. So I think there's a number of moments we could point to, and we could go a lot further back to look at um, the uh, the problematic nature of the way that we moved into a more agricultural existence, you know, much, much further back. But for mm. me, probably the single most significant inflection point is the start of the Industrial Revolution. That's where what's it's sometimes called the Great Acceleration really had its uh, origins. And the Great Acceleration is what what's brought us to the very difficult, uh, uh, well, catastrophic moment, really, that we're uh, entering into now. What is so interesting when having this sort of space of say up to a century away from an, from an event is sort of seeing how ideology runs away with itself 
um, and how citizens start to become, now I don't know the philosophical terms for this, so you, maybe you'll be able to <laughs> couch in correct language for me, but how people become, um, uh, people are sort of made in the image of the, the dominant ideology rather than continuing to progress yeah. ideology in some way. I think a really good example of that is um, Quasi Quarteng and Liz Truss and what they're doing to the British economy at the moment. Um, it's yeah. just neoliberalism gone mad, so mad yes. that even other neoliberals around the world are sort of shocked by it. Um, yeah. And so, like, how does that happen? How does a paradigm um, take hold of a time, a moment in history to the extent that it starts to recursively produce citizens in a sense rather than citizens yeah, citizens yeah. still having some sort of hand on the wheel yeah yeah so the term which comes to mind here is the term hegemony which is a term due to the uh great italian politician and philosopher antonio gramsci uh, when you get ideological hegemony when you get one particular ideology that becomes so dominant that it becomes uh, assumed that it becomes taken for granted, people can't even see it anymore. Then people have less freedom because they are not free with regard to this ideology that's in effect controlling their thoughts. And we've been moving into a period where neoliberalism has been uh, ideologically uh, hegemonic. Uh, the extreme version of neoliberalism that we're seeing now in trusts and Kwarteng and so on well, this arguably is neoliberalism itself. This is always where it was supposed mm. to be heading, that these people are implementing the, the dreams of the people who founded neoliberalism a couple of generations ago, uh, people like uh, Hayek and some of his uh, supporters, Friedrich uh, Hayek. So, yes, it's extreme, but it is actually the, the heart of the ideology itself. And we've been able to get to this point because increasingly the kind of assumptions neoliberals make have been have been taken for granted and it's really crucial to be clear of course that these assumptions don't just um put us end up putting us in a very parlous state economically they do so ecologically as well you know and so it's no coincidence that among the earliest um moves that the trust government is making is really ripping up um, most of our planning controls across half of the country and this is why they've infuriated the Wildlife Trust and the RSPB. I mean, these are not radical organizations. These are part of what I call the old moderate flank. These are very mainstream organizations, very kind of middle England organizations. And they are furious, more furious than they've ever, ever been before because this uh, extreme, but actually I'm, I'm suggesting just sort of, if you will, pure uh, neoliberal um, government uh, is uh, doing stuff which is really terrifying from an ecological perspective, from an animal's perspective, etc. Is it is it pure though? I mean, because Hayek and Friedman both also advocated for some government regulation. They did not advocate for a completely deregulated market in the way that we're seeing. And their neoliberalism, which is kind of, you know, neoclassicism, was also being developed at a time where maybe perhaps we can't know this right <laughs> but perhaps it was unimaginable to them at that moment to think about how low taxes could come uh for example so 
is are we really seeing sort of their dreams implemented um or is it possible that the ideology has uh become a recursive amplified monster of that original um school of thought well look i think the really important thing to understand is that the when um neoliberalism was dreamt up and uh, and begun to uh, to exist on an intellectual level, uh, which is uh, basically after the Second World War with the Montpellerian society and so forth. People can look into this history uh, if they want. Um, it was um, a very uh, uh, extreme uh, point of view, which was miles away from what was then the consensus. Uh, and its advocates tried tirelessly over many years uh, to, uh, to make it hegemonic. Um, and it took a long time really before they got anywhere at all. You know, it was a generation before they got anywhere at all. And then over the next generation, they really got somewhere um, with, uh, with getting into power, people like um, Thatcher uh, and Reagan. Um, uh, they, the hegemony then became such that um, former socialist parties, such as in the UK, the Labour Party, became effectively neoliberal uh, uh, parties in their fundamental uh, mm -hmm. outlook. So then it was more or less dominating the uh, the sort of electable political spectrum, outside of which you had people on the left of the Labour Party and the emerging uh, Green Party. Um, and uh, now you've got to the stage where, where in a, a, a fairly pure form, you know, obviously we can debate whether there'd be things that Trust and Quarting are doing that uh, Hayek or Friedman wouldn't like. In a fairly pure form, uh, yeah, there's been an attempt to implement it. And we've seen economically how uh, catastrophic that attempt uh, is over the last week. Uh, you know, we're literally recording at a time mm. when the UK economy is in turmoil because a fairly pure form of neoliberalism has been put into um, operation. Um, and um, we will see over the next uh, year or so whether there are really horrendous consequences for uh, nature uh, in the UK. Uh, and depending yeah. on what happens, I think I think there may well be. But what one needs to understand is this was an absolutely deliberate, very um, thoughtful, if you will, program uh, that was very carefully implemented, designed to achieve eventual ideological hegemony. Uh, my take, and the take I think of a lot of people now, is that all um, reasonable people and and uh, and moderate and people and sensible people. Never mind people who are um, socialists or ecologically uh, minded at a deep level or whatever, um, should be, um, well, rising up as uh, the RSPB and others are seeking to do uh, to yeah. uh, resist uh, this, um, this extreme um, ideological um, maneuver that has been made. But we should also take a lesson from the neoliberals. Um, it's, it's, it's a fascinating irony that while neoliberalism is designed uh, in such a way that it's liable to have very negative consequences for the long-term um, ecology, et cetera, uh, of anywhere where it's implemented, it itself was designed in a long-termist way. I mean, you know, to achieve its objectives over a period of generations. Mm. You know, that's real kind of, that's far, far deeper thinking than one usually gets um, in politics. Um, and well, um, we, and I mean we in quite a broad sense, as I've said here, um, we need to be thinking in a similar way. You know, how do we, how do we go about um, starting to change the uh, challenge, the hegemony, and starting to, to change it and starting to 
plan for a future for our children, for our grandchildren, for our great grandchildren. You know, that is the great uh, challenge. But as I've been implying, it's really something which is or should be an incredibly mainstream and commonsensical point of view. You know, everybody cares about their children having a decent life. And that means they care about their grandchildren and their great grandchildren and their great great grandchildren uh, having a, a decent life. So this is why perhaps this can be a hopeful. Uh, moment that the kind of shift that we're talking about here, which is very, very far away from where the UK government in particular is right now, is one which should be and can be, and I think is deeply and widely appealing to a broad spectrum of people. Yes, well, fingers crossed. Um, and yet, mm. is the problem not the appeal, but whether or not we will act? Um, it is something uh, that. Yeah my friends and I talk about quite regularly. We were speaking about it even in the office uh, yesterday. Why, why are we not out on the streets? Why are we not doing something? Yeah. It is mad. Mm -hmm. It is mad what is happening. And it is mad that we still, there's a part of us that recognizes what is happening and yet still doesn't seem to feel the need to do something about it as if there's still this belief that, well, it must right itself eventually. Um, mm. Is what, what has happened there? Is that our kind of... Uh, spoiled nature of living in a you know genuine democracy yeah let's not <laughs> let's not debate those terms but living in a privileged democracy for so long um is it that uh it is a crisis of imagination is it that you know capitalism yeah. neoliberalism these hegemonies have just burrowed so deeply in our brain why why are we not out on the streets how do we get people to act well, what a great question. So, so important. It's what myself and colleagues have been puzzling about and working on for a while uh, now. Let me uh, attempt an answer by beginning with, mm. uh, with this. Yeah, I think the factors you mentioned are relevant, but I think there are other factors uh, as well. Um, so one really important factor is, and perhaps you alluded to this when you mentioned a crisis of imagination, I think people are still mostly not clear um, about how bad the situation is and about how much worse it's likely to get. I'm talking here about the climate and ecological uh, situation. Mm -hmm. And we need to help people with that. You mentioned earlier my counterfactual history project, my what if project. I'm trying to imagine how the past mm -hmm. might have been different. Um, and I'm imagining pasts that could have gone a lot better and also in some cases pasts that could have gone a lot worse. Um, so uh, what if, um, on the one hand, you know, here's a really wild, massive one. What if the, uh, those who assassinated uh, Caesar had, uh, had won out over Mark Antony and so on, uh, and there had never been uh, a full-blown uh, Roman Empire? How might that have transformed history? Um, a much more recent one, uh, what if um, the um, democratic result of the 2000 election had gone through? Al Gore was elected U.S. president. The election was stolen from him. That became very clear uh, in the months after the election due to freedom of information requests. What if we'd had Gore rather than uh, Bush? A negative uh, scenario. What if um, our fridges uh, had been differently designed so that for coolants, instead of CFCs, they used bromine, which was entirely possible that could have happened. Um, it sounds incredibly technical. Uh, people will be aware probably that CFCs are what caused the ozone hole. 
which was eventually more or less fixed by brilliant international action. Bromine is a lot more damaging to the ozone layer than CFCs. If bromine had been used in fridges rather than CFCs, the destruction to the ozone hole could have been so bad before anyone realized what was happening that it would have been pretty much um, irreparable. I think it's really worth thinking about how the past could have been different because it gives us a sense of our contingency. It gives us a sense of, of, of sometimes how we've been lucky or unlucky to get where we are. And it gives us a sense of our agency. And that's even more important. People made decisions, you know, that made things go in one direction rather than another. And those decisions could be made differently. And we're at the exact same situation, of course, now, right? What we so badly need now is a sense of our own agency. And that agency is, of course, constrained. And that's one of the reasons, as you implied, why people um, struggle sometimes to act uh, as they need to, as we should. Um, but it is also real. And I believe it is far realer and huger than most people imagine. I think we've got a little bit of a sense of that, a little bit of a hint of that in the last few years with the amazing um, um, upsurges of Extinction Rebellion and the school climate strikes, which uh, have um, uh, altered um, our consciousness and our trajectory on climate. Although if they'd have been bigger, they would have altered it um, a lot more. So that's what we need. We need something that's a lot bigger. Now, um, let's go a bit more deeply into why it isn't happening. Um, as I mentioned a minute ago, I think people haven't been told really how bad the situation is. And they haven't been shown um, how much better it could be. One of the things which I think is hugely important here is the potential role of the arts and entertainment. Uh, and I think that they're only just starting to rise to this challenge. Mm -hmm. A film like Don't Look Up, for example, super, really, really impressive that it had such a success. But as well as um, dystopias, we need what I call throughtopias. We need pictures of how we're going to get through what's coming and how we could get through it into a place mm -hmm. that could on balance be better. Uh, there isn't going to be a utopian future, mm -hmm. that not everything is going to be wonderful and brilliant. We've, we've uh, damaged far too much for us to be able to inhabit such a utopia in the future. But we could have a throughtopia. We could have a society which in many ways is better uh, than what we have right now. We'll only have it um, if we uh, rise up to the full power of our agency. We'll only do that if we really focus on how dire the future is going to be if we don't act on on how, well, pretty good uh, it could be um, if we do, uh, if we do the kind of thing that XR did and that Greta uh, started to do made possible. But if we do it at much more scale now, how's that going to happen? You know, that's why my colleagues and I are working on trying to deliver, trying to bring to the world what is already starting to happen. Uh, what I call the moderate flank, the emerging new um, moderate flank. That's what we need. We need people to get active in ways that, because many people are not going to do the kind of thing that XR asked them to do. Most people are not going to do that, at least not until things get a lot worse. But yeah. we need many more people to get active in their workplaces, in their communities, uh, where they live, also where they pray, where in, uh, in politics uh, as well, of course. We need people to... Um, come into the full power of their agency, which they'll only do if they're shown the full truth of where they're at and the full truth of where they, where they could be uh, 
in the future uh, if we were to make a change in the right direction. Now, with the cost of living crisis, um, with this uh, extreme government that we have now in the UK, I think that we will start to see people um, taking a lot more um, action and resisting uh, than has been the case in the last uh, couple of years. The question is, will it be enough? And that depends on uh, whether enough people get involved in response to this kind of thinking and invitation. Uh, and the question, the really crucial question, of course, is, will it be sufficiently long-termist? Will it be sufficiently deep uh, from an eco perspective? Uh, will it be really serious about taking on uh, the climate crisis? Because all these crises are connected, but unless we see that and act on it and are serious about it, unless we think beyond our own short-term interests, unless we think uh, beyond, for example, merely, um, I want a, a, a warm house uh, this winter, no matter what, unless we realize the way these things are joined mm -hmm. up and the way that we, we have to use this uh, as a profound opportunity to move in the direction we know we need to move in, uh, the direction, for example, in relation to our homes of much greater insulation, much greater uh, uh, installation mm -hmm. of uh, renewable energy, unless we act directly to do that, uh, and act to pressure the political system to do that at the same time. Unless we do that, then we will continue on what is on balance a really terrifying trajectory. But it does not have to be that way. Uh, and that is why I think we are at a potential hopeful moment of inflection as well as a very dark and difficult moment. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think that this could be the moment, certainly in the UK, where people have enough. Um, they're... Mm is literally a campaign called Enough is Enough. <laughs> and yeah. it is very exciting to see multiple campaigns popping up and people just speaking in a far more politically literate and emotional language than we have seen for yes. a while. The, yes. Like, if things have gotten so bad, uh, people are almost not despondent anymore. They've somehow gone back to furious. But there's a couple of yes. things in, in what you said that I want to pause on and, and get into you said um that if we sure. show people the truth um is that true though because how does this not go back to sort of the the hegemony right when you have a hegemony uh let's say that for example society cannot collapse because it is so unimaginable um mm. that our way of life is the correct way of life or it's just the way of life that we know and would like to continue when you have such deep-rooted hegemonies, um, and also it is typically very difficult, we've seen that throughout human history, for um, citizens to be aware of an existential threat. Is it that showing mm. them the truth is enough? Or it, how do we communicate the truth in a way that is effective? Yeah. Or what kind of stories do we need to build to, to, to communicate that truth? It seems to me that actually facts um, and realities and uh, messaging are really falling short of the task in front of us because the truth is not enough going up against people's desires, fears, and um, held cultural beliefs. Mm, mm. Yeah, so look, uh, it depends what you mean by the truth, right? If you mean um, simply mm. some kind of uh, uh, narrow, cold, um, uh, factive uh, version of where we're at and where we're going, yeah, that's not enough. What we need is we need um, a clear um, picture of uh, where we are and where we're going. So that requires, for example, acknowledging um, uh, that the situation um, in terms of the, 
the COPs, uh, the climate COPs, uh, is much worse than most people mm. realize. These, these COPs, the COP system it mm. arguably was designed to fail, unlike the system brought in to deal with mm. the, uh, the threat to the ozone uh, layer. Uh, neoliberals uh, around the world no. made sure that, that, the, uh, that the COP system uh, was not, did not have any legal sanctions in it and was an essentially voluntary uh, system, which is never going to succeed uh, in, uh, in dealing with, uh, with a situation uh, uh, like this. Um, we're not going to stay below 1.5 degrees. So just to explain what I mean by that a little bit more, and this is a, this is a controversial view, but I think it's, uh, I think it's true. Uh, and it, it partly came home to me um, being at COP26 in Glasgow last year and talking with people who had been in the system for um, a long time. Uh, the COP system, at the end of the day, um, is a sort of gigantic international talking shop. I mean, that really is what it is. And you saw that, I think, quite clearly mm -hmm. in what came out of COP26, which was the, the big thing that came out of COP26 that everyone was so excited about it was, we're going to move from five yearly plans to one yearly plans. But they're all just still plans. And, and they, all they devolve down to is voluntary commitments by national governments which are, you might say, better than nothing, but they're not a lot better than nothing. I mean, what is a, what is a commitment mm -hmm. from uh, a government, um, from a bunch of politicians who could be voted out, et cetera? What is it uh, uh, worth yeah. if it's not backed up by anything, right? So if, with the Montreal Protocol mm -hmm. that tackled the ozone crisis in the 80s, that agreement had teeth. Uh, it was enforceable. There's no enforceability to the... Uh, to the UNFCCC uh, agreements, the UN system, which is the basis of the, uh, the, the COP system. And that arguably was a deliberate choice mm -hmm. by neoliberals who saw what happened in response to the ozone crisis. And they said, well, we can't have that again. You know, we can't have some international agreement which is mm -hmm. going to limit uh, economic activity. Um, so, so we're not going to. We're going to make sure that the, the COP system is toothless. So partly because the COP system is toothless, um, we are not going to stay below 1.5 degrees of global overheat. That is a key part of the truth. Uh, again, that's a controversial mm. view, but it's increasingly becoming, it's increasingly entering uh, the open air. People are uh, getting fed up, to be frank, with the kind of so-called stubborn optimism approach that says, no, we're going to do it. We're going to make the mm. Paris Agreement. We're going we're gonna to come through. We're going to save the world. We're going to save below. We're going to stay below 1.5 degrees of global overheat. It's not true. It's not going to happen. This is an awful realization. It is a terrible betrayal. Uh, 1.5 is a proxy for staying safe. And we are not going to stay safe. I mean, we're already not safe, right? We're already in the age of consequences, especially in the, in the global south. But that is going to get worse for a long time to come. So we need these dark truths. Um, we need them, as you imply, to be communicated, not just in plain factual ways, but in emotional ways. You know, people need to understand and need to hear the, the, uh, the profound concern uh, in the voice of someone like myself who's saying this. People need to hear uh, parents talking about this, scientists talking about it. Um, I don't know if you saw the, uh, the Breaking Boundaries program that David Attenborough, Johan Rockstrom did on Netflix uh, last year, I think it was. Very, very impressive program. The reason it was most impressive, in my view, is because you had scientists breaking down in tears while they were being filmed, when they were asked about, you know, what, what their research shows, what they think the future is going to be like. 
You know, that's the kind of thing that people need, not just hearing scientists that make very worrying predictions, but hearing something which is actually congruent with those predictions in the voices of those scientists, real deep concern, yeah. uh, grief, fear, uh, anger, as you say, these are the kinds of things that we need. And of course, this ties in with what you mentioned and what I mentioned before. It's got to be about stories as well, right? We need to have pictures painted of alternative possible futures. This is what the world will look like if we carry on on the path we are on. Um, this is what the world will look like mm -hmm. um, uh, if we don't, you know, in various different scenarios. It's obviously never as simple as just a, uh, just a binary. Um, and we need to be clear that if we manage to start making a course correction, it doesn't mean that everything is going to be okay. Like I say, we are in the age of consequences. Mm -hmm. Things are already not okay. They're going to carry on getting worse for quite a while to come. That truth needs to be understood. Mm -hmm. And we need to understand that it is still, uh, that we are still in time to prevent the worst consequences uh, that could come. And that the difference between the two is astronomical. You know, it's a difference between, crucially, for instance, a society that, that probably collapses and one that, uh, and one that doesn't, one, one that struggles through yeah and if we care about our children and you know that's what we all care about right what we all want is a decent future for our children in my case for our nephews and nieces and, and so on and so forth we all want that we know what what mm -hmm. that means we know what that means in terms of the kind of things we have to do and what i mean by the kinds of things we have to do that includes what we were talking about a few minutes ago it includes changing your life right it includes getting involved it doesn't necessarily mean you have to glue yourself to a motorway uh, it doesn't necessarily mean you even have to become an activist but it does mean that every single person who wakes up to this reality has to reassess their life and think what what am i doing to place myself in a good position to be able to look my kids in the eye in 20 or 30 years time say and say I'm proud that I did what I could. I'm proud that I did everything that I could. I'm proud that I, that I operated in the places where I could have the most impact to make a change. And whether or not that, that effort has been successful, you know, what, what everyone needs is to, is to reorganize their life and their priorities so they're able to answer that question truthfully. I'm proud of what I did. I'm proud of the, the massive difference I made in my profession, for example. Or I'm proud of the fact that I gave away um, uh, 100,000 pounds to, uh, to the cause or something like that, you know? It's not enough anymore to think, well, I've got a standing order to Greenpeace, you know, what more do you want of me? Uh, the, the, this, if, if people have, and of course, you know, lots of people still have um, substantial amounts of money in their, in their bank account or um, a second home or whatever, you know, you need to be thinking is this really what I want to be doing with, uh, with my wealth? Is this really the best thing I could be doing with it? But a lot of this wealth is going to be worthless unless we have a, a major societal course correction. So, you know, mm -hmm. put that money now into, into something which could actually be useful. People don't realize, for example, that um, a crucial factor in the ability of Extinction Rebellion to do what we did um, uh, when we launched in 2018 there was that we had um, a very substantial uh, initial donation from um, a businessman uh, who was like, yeah, I, I want to give some power to your, uh, to your elbow and see if you can uh, force a national conversation mm -hmm. and change the, uh, the status quo around climate consciousness. 
And, you know, thank goodness he did that because mm-hmm. he made a huge difference to our ability to really get started and really start to break through as in mm-hmm. 2019 we did, where so many people hadn't broken through before. But now what is needed is for a much mm-hmm. wider, uh, larger mobilization. Like I say, it's, it's the radical flank made brilliant, did brilliant work in 2019. It's time now for a mass moderate flank. And every person of good conscience uh, uh, needs to be uh, a part of it. And if we are, then untold things are possible. You know, you look at what XR or Fridays for Future achieved, you know, multiply that by 100. That's what we need to do. And that what is it, that's what is entirely possible uh, to do. Because be sure of one thing, these, these, you know, the climate issue is not an issue. It's so much bigger than that. It is a, it is a whole um, new condition of existence. It's permanent. Uh, it is going to carry on getting worse for a considerable time. And one of the things that means is there will be more climate activism. There will be much more climate action in the 2020s. It is inevitable that this is going to grow. The question is, you know, are you going to be a part of it? Is it going to grow uh, enough? In what direction is it going to grow? Is it going to be maximally effective? You know, these are the kinds of questions that we need to be stepping up to now. I agree. I think I think part of the problem is that people don't know where to step up to. I find mm-hmm. I find something about the, something about the climate movement to me is fascinating in that it is still so fragmented. Um I increasingly see sort of how um climate agents and actors like pop up uh, in similar networks doing really really great work and from the inside you can see oh yeah there is there is actually a network of people in the united kingdom for example that are are working very very hard to move the needle um but from the outside it is it is difficult to kind of understand where to go what to do mm-hmm. who to speak mm-hmm. with um yeah i think if a lot of people if they had a spare 100,000 they'd be like but I, I, but I do not know who to give it to Apart from, say, Greenpeace, um, is Greenpeace doing the kind of action that we need now? I don't. I actually don't know enough about the organisation. Um, I would say donate to their newsroom <laughs> as a journalist. Unearthed, I think it's fantastic. Um, yes, they're very good. I, it's I, to me, it's they are really great. But to me, it's not just the fact that people are are disempowered or we need to staff up to our agency. There seems to be no roadmap really. For what to do. And part of the problem, of course, is that all of the attention in the press has been focused on these sort of um, uh, disobedient actions like gluing oneself yes. to things or breaking windows or whatever. And yes. lots of people don't want to get involved with that, um, understandably so. But where do people go? How do we, uh, how do I put this, um, not centralize like the movement because part of a resilient ecosystem is its diversity and we need to keep the climate movement sort of decentralized in order so they can continue to resist power um and yet i feel like we need you know big flashing uh arrows all over the country and in the internet to show people where to go and what to do even i am not sure and i'm pretty deeply involved in it at this stage yeah um so the moderate the mass moderate flank let's get into the language of that as well in a minute but are we, how do I, what is the question? Well, because uh, I mean, the way I'm inclined to respond is by trying to talk about some real examples. You know, some of what we've been saying may be a bit mm-hmm. abstract to some uh, viewers and listeners um, thus far. Um, the way I envisage this emerging uh, 
mass moderate flank. Um, it's not going to be uh, centralized. It's going to be quite um, bottom up and quite um, diverse. Uh, it's going to be popping up all over the place. Um, so let's talk about some of those things that are already starting to uh, pop up. Um, so um, you may be aware of the emerging network of climate emergency centers, for example. I think this is a really kind of um, hopeful uh, and accessible development. Climate emergency centers um, spring up in uh, towns, cities, um, parts of the countryside even, uh, all over the, the country. Uh, they're sort of one-stop shots for people to think about uh, how to get involved in uh, mitigation and adaptation to the, uh, of and to the, the, uh, the crisis uh, situation uh, that we're in. Uh, and they uh, and they're and they're very kind of um, they're very grassroots. You can support them in the particular places where they are. You can support them with your time. You can support them with your money. I have this phrase in my book, uh, "Parents for a Future: Your Money or Your Life." You know, choose to give one or the other mm. to the to the to the cause. Mm. Um, and uh, and if there isn't one where you uh, live or near where you live, well, then you can start one. And that's what people are doing. And um, what they're doing is they're taking over mm. vacant buildings. Um, and um, they're maintaining them and using them for this purpose. And they get a 100% council tax um, um, reduction for doing that. Basically, if there are vacant buildings, um, councils don't want them to fall into disrepair. They don't want them to fall into disrepair. So right. people for these kinds of nonprofit purposes can, can use them um, to, uh, to, uh, to do the things in, and it doesn't cost a, a dime. Um, Turning to uh, workplaces, which I think is an absolutely crucial locale for what we're talking about. About um, in uh, in advertising, there is an organisation called Purpose Disruptors. You know, if you're an ad an ad man, uh, how yeah. can you put those uh, dark arts to a good cause? Well, Purpose Disruptors mm -hmm. are are doing it uh, as our clean creatives um, uh, in the legal profession. Um, Lawyers for Net Zero is a very exciting uh, development, trying to get lawyers to act in the corporations where they work to turn those corporations in a mm. better direction. And also, of course, in the legal field, you've got uh, uh, organizations like Client Earth, uh, which are um, taking on governments and corporations and so forth, taking them on in the courtroom and winning. Uh, and people and people who are lawyers can do pro bono work for uh, for Client Earth or other similar organisations and make a, a massive difference um, uh, in that way. Um, here's a, a really fascinating, bold example. There's an organisation called Safe Landing, uh, which is um, airline pilots and others in the airline industry challenging the climate disastrous nature of their own industry and saying, "Look, we need a transition." plan here, which among other things is going to involve in the future, creating a smaller airline industry, because, you know, all this stuff about uh, jet zero and uh, um, um, carbon free flying and so on um, is basically for the birds, at least for the moment, uh, there's going to have to be a significant reduction uh, in flying if we're going to uh, not devastate our climate uh, a lot more. So you might think, well, you know, Airline pilots, well, there's nothing they can they can do. You know, they're they're stuck in this terrible uh, job, terrible, full of the climate. Well, safe landing are trying to do something about that. It's a brilliant name as well, I think. Safe landing, it's multiple mm -hmm. uh, meanings. Um, 
so these are just some examples. There are many more uh, I could give of things like this that are uh, emerging. Um, and the organization I founded, um, the Moderate Flank Incubator, aims to um, support them uh, and to do kind of thought leadership around this and to, you know, to do podcasts like this and so on and so forth. Um, and in our own case, you know, we are, we are able to exist and, and do meaningful stuff because of a couple of uh, uh, very large uh, donations, one um, um, five-figure donation, one six-figure donation, uh, which enabled a bunch of us um, to, to really get going on uh, trying to support these emerging organizations and trying to help it be the case that um, there is somewhere for people to go. You know, I think you're right. What people want to know is, what, what should I do? What is most effective? Uh, and what I say to them is, where you work or where you live or, or where you pray, there's going to be somewhere in your life where there's a huge change to be made, which can involve a lot of people. And maybe it's already happening, in which case join it and support it. And maybe it's not, in which case co-create it. Uh, and, and that's what people are doing uh, all across these, these, uh, these fields and areas and many more. Uh, it's, an exciting, um, it's an exciting time uh, to, to, uh, to, to be alive and to be a thinking person at this time. It's a terrifying time uh, and an awesome time and an exciting time. You know, it's an incredible uh, opportunity uh, to be around uh, these things um, as, they, as they come into being. So that's what I would say, you know, anyone who's kind of thinking, oh, yeah, well, I've been wondering about this for a while. And how do I kind of reach a conclusion? Well, just make sure that the wandering doesn't last your whole life. You know, uh, maybe you need a few more weeks or a few mm. more months, and that's absolutely fine. But sooner or later, start to commit yourself and take action in one of these spheres and be confident that this is going to grow and grow because it is, right? That is inevitable. That is inevitable because of the times that we are in and the waking up that is happening. The question is only, will it come soon enough to avoid some of the worst impacts? Uh, will it happen at enough, at enough scale? And the answer partly depends on us. So it's a big invitation to agency based mm -hmm. in the truth, based in the reality that there, there is support uh, for this um, uh, and based in the um, uh, exciting um, um, broader uh, reality that there's gonna be more and more of this. And as people look around and see more of it, um, then they'll join in with it as well. So we can get then into a kind of virtuous circle um, rather than a vicious circle, a virtuous circle of, of kind of hope and, and action and possibility uh, and commitment, all kind of um, supporting each other and growing. Wonderful. <laughs> what a lovely, uh, <laughs> yeah. wonderful call to action and vision. Thank you so much, Rupert. I was wondering if here to, towards the end of the episode, if um, yeah. you spoke about through utopias and, you know, we can't have a utopian vision, but because you are obviously so creative and you're <laughs> writing these kinder histories, do you think you could surmise a, a hopeful vision for the future whereby mm. even though we may have overshot 1.5, uh, you know, yeah. we didn't hit two, we managed to keep it to 1.6 or 1.7. Um, yeah. we have done away with neoliberalism. Like what, what could the yeah. future look like if everybody acted? Yeah. Well, you started to sketch it uh, there. Yeah. What, what, what we need is mm. we need realistic visions of a future where things are going to be very tough, but also things could be better. And yeah, that's part of what I mean by fruitopia. 
We don't want a, a utopia that just feels unreal to, to people and is frankly unreal. But we can have visions of a future which is, which is net uh, better. Um, so to expand on that a little bit more, what, what could it be like? What may it be like? I think it is certain uh, that the future will be more local. Um, it might not happen immediately, but the longer um, we delay in having a more local future, um, the more likely it is that it ends up being uh, hyper-local in the worst sense. In other words, after a collapse, um, things are a lot more local, right? So the future is going to be more local. It's either going to be more local because there's going to be collapse events or it's going to be more local because we've chosen to make it more uh, local. Um, so there will be uh, less dependence on long, um, uncertain international supply lines that are very carbon heavy. There will be more dependence on, for example, uh, seasonal uh, uh, vegetables. Um, in the future, um, you won't be eating so many uh, tomatoes from uh, Holland or Spain. Um, you'll probably be eating uh, uh, rather more apples from uh, Kent and Norfolk uh, and so on and so forth. Um, they, the future is going to be uh, one um, in which there is more security. Uh, in which there is less uh, uncertainty. That is, the, that is a place we can get to. It's not going to come quickly, but I think it, it could uh, eventually come. Um, because if we start to have uh, a future which is not uh, fixated on endless economic growth, uh, a future which is more uh, local, a future which is um, more intent upon uh, preserving nature, on uh, rewilding, and rewilding is going to be a, a, an ongoing uh, phenomenon for sure also uh, over the next uh, decade uh, and more. Uh, a future where we are more aware of and take more seriously that our soils are alive uh, and they're not just um, uh, dead bits of, uh, of sand and dust and so on in which we um, stick uh, our um, crops. Um, once these kinds of things uh, start happening, uh, then the kind of chronic um, uncertainty uh, that we're currently in will become a bit less uh, chronic. Uh, and you mentioned earlier, well, can people really think um, collapse? Is it so far outside the conventional frames of society? The thing is, it's becoming uh, easier and easier, uh, tragically, for people to, to think it uh, and uh, imagine it. Um, and it's very interesting when you, when you look at opinion polls, what opinion polls say about this. Um, uh, they uh, they say that actually loads of people are contemplating it privately. The future will be one in which these things are more out in the open, in which our fears are more out in the open. And the more they come out into the open, the more we're able to act on them and the more we're able to stop them from becoming uh, reality. So I think the, uh, the next mm -hmm. 10 or 20 years, we're going to see um, a lot more um, truth and frank uh, facing of where we are and that can feed into a future where we actually, uh, over time, um, have less chance of the direst realities becoming, uh, the direst possible realities becoming actual, um, more security, more of a sense of ourselves as having a kind of uh, a reasonable chance of having a reasonably long uh, tenure uh, on Earth as uh, inhabitants and stewards, uh, rather than... Um, fantasizing ourselves as some kind of masters or, or overlords. So that's a kind of rough outline of, uh, of how things uh, could be. Um, we need to imagine how the past could have been different. We need 
crucially to imagine how the future could be different. We need to do that ourselves. We need especially artists, storytellers, et cetera, uh, to do it. Uh, and we need to imagine both bad futures and decent futures like that. And that is something which there's so far that yeah. arts and the entertainment world has been quite poor on imagining and, and depicting these kinds of throughtopias, the kind of thing that for the last, you know, four or five minutes, uh, I've been uh, kind of going on about some of what the broad outlines might be like. That's one of the reasons why right now I myself and others in the Moderate Flank Initiative are working with um, filmmakers and artists and dramatists and, uh, and writers uh, and, um, and trying to co-create some of these utopias, trying to give people this sense of agency between a future which is increasingly bad and a future which is really challenging, but in which we come through to be in some ways better off than we are right now more secure, um, better uh, nourished, uh, less chronically uncertain, with a better uh, sense of, uh, of community and so forth. Uh, it really is attainable. Rupert, thank you so much. Um, I believe it and I want all of our listeners to believe it as well. I think what is so Great. important to note is there are so many people who are working very, 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 very hard. If you want to go out and join the cause, you will not be alone. I'm sorry it's not easier yes. to find us. If you're listening to this and this is the first time maybe you've heard of some of these things, like we are working on it, but you are not alone. If you want to go out and get involved, there's a whole community waiting for you and things are moving very, very, very quickly. Rupert, thank you so much for your time today. This has been absolutely fascinating. My final question, of course, is who would you like to platform? Yes, yeah, so I've been yeah, giving this some thought good. and um, I would suggest David Wallace Wells. He is uh, someone who I've known for a few years now uh, he became famous uh, uh, in in our part of the world, if you will, um, through his uh, article, which then became a book called The Uninhabitable Earth. Um, and what's interesting mm -hmm. about David is he's really got his uh, finger on the pulse of uh, trends towards things getting very, very bad. But he also, uh, like me, um, has some, and like most of us, actually, uh, has some... Um, um, active hope and determination uh, to, uh, to make the future uh, a better place and prevent these, uh, these dark possibilities from becoming a reality. Uh, he's incredibly uh, well-informed, uh, including about the, the kind of movements we've been talking about. So yeah, he'd be a great person to have on mm -hmm. if you can get him. Great. Wonderful. Rupert, thank you cool. so much for your time. This has just been magic. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. And yeah, yes. I can't wait to share it with you when it, when it comes out. I'll let you know. I'll look forward to that. If you want to learn more about Rupert's work, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly essays inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. As always, thank you to the Planet Critical community who support the show and make all of this work possible. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.